the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to Let Us Reason, a Christian-Muslim dialogue with host Al Fadi. Let Us Reason is a unique show utilizing theology, apologetics, and evangelism to reach Muslims for Christ by comparing and contrasting Christian and Muslim doctrines. And now, your host, Al Fadi. Today we're going to talk about another example of one of those early Quranic manuscripts known as the Tubigan Manuscript. The reason why we're bringing it up is because it was used also by a scholar by the name of uh, Mariam Van Putin, where he made reference to these uh, manuscripts to support one of his own discoveries. And of course, with me here to unpack all of this is our dear Dr. Jay Smith. Dr. Jay, welcome back. Good to be back again. Good to be talking about these manuscripts. Controversial, yes, they are controversial, but we need to really unpack them because the claims have been made, and we need to say, are those claims correct? So let's look at the two again. I'm going to go ahead and put the slide up here. If you look at the slide, you will see these are just four folios from the Tübingen manuscript, which is in Germany. Now, in 2014, the University of Tübingen uh, announced the results of radiometric analysis of an early Quran in its library collection, which originally came from Damascus. A sample of this manuscript was analyzed by the Swiss Federal Institute of Technology in Zurich, in Switzerland, uh, which reported a greater than 95% probability that the animal from which this folio had been produced died sometime between 649 and 675. Well, if that is the case, if Muhammad died in 632, as Muslims believe, I don't believe that, you don't believe that, but as certainly as the standard Islamic narrative states, then you can see this is very close. And this is also within the range of 652, where the Uthmanic recension right. would have been uh, written. So this manuscript had previously been dated by experts on the basis of paleography and format as most likely having been written in the early 8th century. So this puts it back a, a good 50 years. And you know what's so interesting is I've, I've been looking at the upper layer of the Sana manuscript for a while, and this almost looks the same just from a distance. Absolutely. Yeah. That's going to come into play. Yeah. So is it 649 to 675, which would fit the Noldeki Schwali paradigm, or is it later on in the 8th century, the 705 to 720, which would fit perfectly with Abdul Malik and Hajjaj paradigm? Let's see what the scholars say. So let's go to the next slide, and you can see, here you go, Shoemaker. And his, his he comes back and says, hold on a minute, we're, again, we're having the same problem again. We're just using one lab. Remember with Asana? Once they went to three other labs, you came up with four different, uh, four different dates that actually contradicted the laboratory in Arizona by hundreds of years in some cases, all the way back to 388, the fourth century. So we got to do the same thing with the Tubigen lab. Mm -hmm. This was far too simplistic, 
Shoemaker, say, of an analysis to rely on the results of a single dating from a single lab, while completely discounting the evidence for dating the manuscript based on its script and analysis. Therefore, what, according to him, and, and also uh, Fideli and Sellard, they came up and they said, look at other manuscripts. Look and see if there's, if there's similarities. So let's see what Fideli and, and uh, Sellard said. This is what they said. Radiocarbon dating is often assumed to possess a sort of supremacy that authorizes the acceptance of its results separate from other methods of relative dating. And this is exactly what Van Putin has done. He just puts it out there. It's scientific. We trust science. Therefore, let's go with the dating. And no questions asked. Almost hoping that no other questions are asking. Well, Fideli and Sellari say, no, you cannot do that. So they, let's continue. They say, consequently, the notion of the dating of the parchment has completely been superimposed upon the dating of the text. In this replacement process, no reference has been proposed to the type of script and letter shapes of the text itself or a comparison to contemporary dated documents which exhibit similar features. Now, Al-Fadi, you know and I know that the scripts change in every language, in every text, in every script. We do, even in English. If you look at an archaic or a book that was written maybe 100, 100 to, 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 let's say 200 years ago, you'll see a letter F, and that's an S letter. Right. We don't, F today is a F letter. It's, it's like Finnish, but it's not an S letter today. So already you can see, even in English, we can see that. Why in the world aren't we doing the same thing with Arabic? And so yeah. that's why they're saying, go back to other manuscripts, look and see how the orthography changes, look and see how the script changes, and you get a better picture of what we're talking about. That is true. So Shoemaker says that radiocarbon date, uh, 14 dating, only the, it only dates the parchment. We've said this so many times before, but it does not date the ink. The radiocarbon dates only tell us when the animal died, reminds him that, us of that. Not with the ink which applied to the parchment. Unwritten leaves could sit in storage for generations, let alone decades before their use, especially if you didn't make the parchment to begin with which the Arabs had not been making these parchments. They grabbed them. They took them from the Christians. Sometimes they bought them. Some they took, sometimes they took them in raids. Uh, obviously, the Christians had them for other uh, use because they wanted to use them for the biblical texts. The Arabs were now taking them. They were using for their own. And, of course, it, it makes sense now. While at this time, uh, uh, beginning of the 8th century, Abdul Malik, uh, and Al-Hajjaj would have been tra- taking these parchments and writing their own script from those parchments. Uh, Shoemaker then continues, and he talks about the fact that when you look at the dots, when you look at the vowelizations, you need to then date it from that. The ornamentation on the manuscript with dots punctuating divisions between the verses as well as hollow red circles. Now, that's the first part. Remember, that even changed. So when you have hollow circles and when you have three dots, that is the earlier punctuation mark. Those are usually between verses, and they're also vowelization. That then got changed later on to having slashes, curlicues, and dots of three above and three below, which started in the 8th and 9th century. And by the way, people can look at some of these early manuscripts. It's it's even clear to the naked eye that something was added on top of a letter or close to a word. If you were doing it while you're writing, you will space it out. Yes, and you will see even a yeah. different color. In right. the case of the topkapa that we're going to get that we talked about right. earlier, the topkapa has red dots, proving that these are probably lighted at a at a later date. So these hollow red circles, he says, surrounded by dots at every tenth verse. 
and a series of triangular dots filling the line to the margin to mark the end of the surahs does not look what like what we would expect from one of the first attempts at the Quran into writing, certainly not in the mid-7th century. This is from the 8th century, is what he is saying. So, stylistically, it's early 8th century made to compete with a Christian text. Doroche brings us up, Salad brings us up. Why are they doing this? Why the stylization? What's going on? Because they're trying to compete with the Christian text. They're trying to compete with the Byzantine Christians who have the standard text. You now are introducing your Quran. You're introducing from your prophetic line. You want to be able to have that which is equal to theirs. So this is what they say. On the basis of the page layout, illuminations, paleography, and other markers from the production of the text on the page, this parallels a larger group of manuscripts produced in the end of the 7th century and the beginning of the 8th century under the official state patronage of the imperial court. The ornamentation and style of these manuscripts reflect the campaign initiated by Abdel al-Malik and al-Hajjaj to establish a new distinctively Islamic Arabic scripture to suppress or surpass the scriptures of the Christians and Jews. Uh, I, I will disagree with just one part of that, but you'll see why later. These elements of ornamentation in the early codices were intended to rival the luxury Bibles of the Christians in appearance. Now, this is Doro saying this. This is Salard, his student. Remember, these are the top in the world today. They're, they're putting it in a historical context. You've got to see that there was a competition going on. And this competition d- demanded that they had this stylized, beautiful stylization, which is what we're seeing in the Tubingen manuscript. Uh, Fideli and Shoemaker then say that you look at these similar Qurans. We said that earlier. It remains the fact that the form of the text as written on the Tubingen parchment corresponds with other crowns from the early 8th century, which bear the hallmarks of production under the imperial auspices, or the imperial auspices means Abdul Malik and Al-Hajjaj, who is his governor. Three reasons the Tubingen manuscripts not is not from the 7th century, but from the 8th century. Number one, the dots in the circular verse markings suggest a much more stylized and thus later text. Number two, the page layout, the illuminations, the paleography parallels other 8th century manuscripts. Number three, ornamentations reflect Abdul Malik's and Al-Hajjaj's new distinctively Islamic and Arabic texts, which they hoped would surpass Christian manuscripts from that time. And that's why we need to go back. We need to ask this question, and that's why we need to go back and look and see what the scholars are saying. I don't want to come up with my own suppositions. These are the scholars who have worked on these manuscripts for, well, their whole careers. Who am I to question them? But I would love to see what Pan, Van Putin's going to say, because Van Putin's going to have to answer this. He's going to have to look at the paleographical material. None of this, none of these dots and vowels, none of this ornamentation exists in the mid-7th century. We don't even have much of a script in the early uh, mid-7th century. Mm-hmm. Yes, in the 8th century, but not 50 to 60 years earlier. Yeah, and um, uh, certainly it will be interested, uh, interesting to take a look at those. And, uh, and, and I agree, of course, with some of the stuff that uh, uh, Rouge and Szilard have, have been saying, because you have to really wonder where did these styles of ornamentation, and some of them look really beautiful, even though you would look at the orthography and the paleography of the manuscript, and it looks a little bit aged compared to the beauty of these ornamentations. So that tells me, uh, as they stated it correctly, it's been borrowed at a certain time. Okay. Yeah. 
Now we're going to get in some heavy material. This is the exciting stuff coming up. Are you ready? Very good. Now we're going to ask, and this is where I love Shoemaker. This is what he does. However, he does make a huge glaring mistake. We're going to get to that later. He is now going to ask the question that everybody should be asking. If this Quran comes from Mecca Medina, what's happening in Mecca Medina? What exactly is going on down there? Could those two cities in that place have accommodated the Quran that we have today? Wonderful. And, and of course, I mean, who knows? Maybe he didn't think about that particular question for whatever reason. Maybe he focuses effort on whatever he's producing, but it's good to address things like this. Thank you, everyone, for joining us. Until next episode, this is Al Fadi. Over and out. Thank you for listening. We'll be right back after this message. You're listening to Let Us Reason with Al Fadi. We depend on the generous gifts of our supporters to produce this program. To join us in this work, go to patreon.com and search for CIRA International. That's C-I-R-A International. You can also donate through PayPal. Go to CIRAInternational.com to learn more. Your support will help us continue introducing Muslims to the gospel of Christ. Now, back to Let Us Reason. We have talked about a number of things, and we've adapted many of these thoughts and quotations primarily from a book by Dr. Stephen Shoemaker. The book is called Creating the Quran. But along the way also, we've been interjecting our own thoughts and our own discoveries and our own commentary and so on and so forth. When I say we, I'm talking about myself and Dr. Jay Smith, who is with me here in studio. And one of the things that we would like to address, because it was referenced uh, by Dr. Shoemaker, uh, is Mecca. And the title of this particular uh, episode is, What About Mecca? And with me here, of course, to answer this question is Dr. Jay Smith. Jay, what about Mecca? Yeah, and this is something that Shoemaker brings up in page 96 uh, of his book, this book here, Creating the Quran. He asks amazing question. This is why I love this guy, because he's asking the question no one wants to answer, and that is, if this Quran was received between 610 and 622 in a place called Mecca, and then from 622 to 632 in a place called Medina, those are historical places. We're talking about a historical fact. Between 610 and 632, there needs to be a Mecca, there needs to be a Medina there in order for him to have received this Quran in those two cities, known as the Hijaz, the central part, very close to where you grew up and where you were, uh, were born. You were right. born in Jeddah, not too far from Mecca, right? That is correct. So he goes back, he says, let's take a look. Could this book, the Quran with all its sophistication, with all its enormous amount of theology, enormous amount of bibliology, because it's talking about biblical characters. It's talking about biblical places. It's talking about biblical events. It's talking about theological disputes. It's talking about even Christian disputes, enormous anti-Trinitarian versus Trinitarian disputes. Who is Jesus? Uh, does he ever claim to be God? Does he deny his, his sonship? Does he deny his divinity? Does he deny the Trinity. These are, I mean, the Quran is full of these references, which suggest, therefore, there has to be Christians there in Mecca Medina for these discussions to have happened. There has to be Jews there to have even given the material on all these biblical characters, Abraham and Moses. Enormous stories about Abraham going into the Kaaba and destroying those idols in chapter 21 of the Quran. Uh, this, these are good stories. The difficulty is, or 
the supposition is, if all this material is there in the Quran, then there have to be Jews and Christians, there have to be people, there have to be thousands of people living in these. I, I, you brought up one of, uh, on one of your shows, and you do this, you brought up somebody, uh, one of your, um, who is saying that at one point that there may have been anywhere from eight to 10,000 Jews in Yathrib. And Shoemaker, hearing something like that, would pull his hair out because that's not what the scholars are finding. So what we need to do and what Shoemaker does, and he goes back and he says, let's go look at these places to see if it could have accommodated this mm-hmm. script, if it could accommodate a Quran of this sophistication, hugely sophisticated, because why? Much of the material is, uh, is in an environment of debate, an environment of exchange, in an environment of confrontation. If that is the case, then this should have been happening in Mecca, Medina, in the early 7th century, 610, up until 632, for Muhammad to have received this at that time and at that place. So when you go back on page 96, he says this. This is what's interesting. I'm just going to be quoting. This is Shoemaker uh, stating this. He says, The near total invisibility of the Hijaz in any of our late ancient sources is seemingly a clear sign that it was isolated from the insignificant to the broader world of late antiquity. So he comes out with us right away. He says, we've got a problem here. There's just nothing there. Hotting, Gerald Hotting, who is my professor at School uh, of Oriental and African Study, uh, he was the one that really introduced me to this back in the 19... We're talking about the last century, which shows my age. I was there in London, and I was going to school, and I did this course at the school at SOAS, And we did a whole year of just looking at the origins of Islam. And one of the first things he said when he was there in class, he said, you know, I've spent 20 years learning the languages, uh, archaic languages uh, of the Levant and this part of the world to try to confront the Bible. After 20 years, I wasn't getting anywhere, but I already had the languages down. So I decided to turn my energies onto the Quran and ask the same question that had been asked of the Bible, let's ask these questions of the Quran. This is the first day of class. He said this to all about 50 students who were in his class at that time. Uh, and he says, what you're going to hear for the next year is not going to be, it's going to be a little unsettling. There were about 20 Muslims who were in the class at that time. They all left probably. Within two weeks, all but one of them left. And when they left, they were slamming the door and yelling things that were not that pleasant at Dr. Hotting. But what was Hotting doing that was wrong? What was he doing? He was just applying academic, historical criticism. Historical he was asking yeah. the same questions in 1994 and 1995 when I was there that Shoemaker is asking in 2022, which is the question everybody asks. And that is, if this book, the Quran, this one here, existed between 610 and 632 in the Hijaz, Mecca and Medina, then it should fit the Hijaz in six to, between 610 and 652, uh, 632, sorry. It should fit that environment. It should fit that place. It should fit those people. It should fit that time. So what, does, what did Hawking find out? Well, let's read what he said. He said, it turns out that the image of Mecca, which we find in so much modern scholarship, as well as in the early Islamic tradition, which both portrayed as a major pilgrimage center, and a sanctuary is nonetheless a scholarly mirage. Ooh, tu, 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 tu. That's what he calls it. This is just a mirage. 
There simply is no sufficient evidence, even from the late Islamic tradition, to support the existence of any pilgrims to a place called Mecca prior to the rise of Islam. And so Mecca seems to have been incorporated into the Hijaz only sometime well after Muhammad's lifetime, most likely in the later 7th century. (laughs) Oh dear, this is haunting saying this. So he says this in two different, uh, two different books uh, written uh, there in 2018. So the question that Shoemaker asked, well, then could Mecca possibly be this Bacca or Jerusalem or a Qibla or early mosque? Where did this Quran place Mecca? Uh, many scholars are beginning to believe that the Bacca of the Quran May, could very well be Jerusalem, where many of the mosques seem to be facing. Dan Gibson, you and I did a whole series on this. And Shoemaker's asking a very good point. Mel and I did a series looking at and uh, with Paul Ellis. Paul Ellis has done a great work of looking at what we call the Jerusalem thesis. And he got back and he found out that Bacca actually is well known. Bacca is where the pilgrims, the Jewish pilgrims, would stop before they went into Jerusalem. It was like the last stop to get rested before you go and do all your sacrifices there at the temple. Becca is very well known, but that's way up in Jerusalem, not a good thousand miles further south. That Becca is is not only a Jewish thing, it is probably the, the, the word itself, Becca, is not the same roots as Mecca, as you well know since you know Arabic. That's right. I mean, uh, it, what a coincidence. You have Becca in the Bible, and you have Bakka that exists today, uh, the Bakka Valley, basically, or at least the Bakka of the of the Bible uh, in reference to a valley uh, uh, that people will cry on their way to Jerusalem, and somehow the Quran uses that word to represent Mecca, which is a geographical area that is way up north. What a coincidence! What a coincidence, yeah. And this is why, if people are going to talk about the uh, about the, where the Quran comes from, you need to ask the first question. If all the Islamic narratives, standard Islamic narrative, if all the traditions, if all the Muslims are giving lip service to Mecca, what are the scholars saying who actually studied Mecca? Now, probably the best one who studied Mecca is, is Patricia Corona herself. She wrote Hagarism in 1977. She wrote Meccan Trade in the Rise of Islam 10 years later in 1987. Uh, she is the only one that reads and writes the languages, 15 languages from that area, from that place. Therefore, she's the best qualified. I don't know of any Muslim that has done what she has done. And she has gone back, and this is her conclusion about Mecca. Let me just read her conclusion. Uh, this is from uh, the Meccan Trade in the Rise of Islam, page 134 to 137. She says this, By all measures, the central Hijaz, Hijaz is that central area where Mecca and Medina are, and especially Mecca, appear to have been culturally isolated except perhaps for the quite hypothetically possibility of some long-distance traders who might have interacted with Romans near the desert frontier. When she says desert frontier, you're talking about way farther north. The Romans did not come further down than Tabuk, possibly the Chaibat, but that's that's way up at the Gulf of Aqaba. Way up in the north, that's where the Neon Project is going to be uh, is being built. It is highly significant, she continues. One should note that no source prior to the Quran makes any mention of Mecca, and the Quran itself mentioned it 
only a single time, and that's in chapter 84, chapter 48, verse 24. As we well know, the Quran that mentions it, it, probably even that verse is not a verse that was added into the Quran until possibly the 8th century. By the 8th century, then, yes, Mecca would have been well known, but not at the time of Muhammad, not at 570 when he was supposedly born there, not in 610 when he started receiving revelations there, and not in 622 when he moved from Mecca up to Medina. And you know what's so significant about uh, Patricia Caroni's uh, uh, comment? It's, she said that no source prior to the Quran makes any mention of Mecca. Well, logic will say if Mecca didn't even appear until later time, what does that say about the origin of the Quran itself? Bingo. There we're going to go. Now, the next step, what I want to do, I want to continue with this theme. I'm going to move into this. I'm going to talk about what Shoemaker then comes to his conclusions on this, but also talk about what we now know about Mecca, some of the things that you and I have talked about. Shoemaker is agreeing with us. He's supporting us completely. Amazing what he comes up with, but that's for the next episode. Wonderful, brother. So exciting, and I hope everybody is benefiting from this, and, and I can speak on behalf of Dr. J. We encourage you not only to watch it, but take the material. Take the material and use it in your own outreach, use it in your own debates, use it in your own apologetics, use it in your own evangelism, and also bring in awareness, not just to the church, but to our Muslim friends. I'm sure many of you have Muslims in your own network that you can reach them, uh, reach out to them uh, in a far better way than we can connect with them. We only speak to them through the screen. You can speak to them face to face. We're doing this for their sake. We want them to find the true path to heaven. And that's our Lord Jesus Christ. And that's our invite, invitation to them. Thank you, brother, as always. Thank you, everyone, for watching. This is Al Fadi, over and out. God bless. Three star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to, he understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.